0: If you got a bulletin on the way in, you might take that out. There's some notes you can follow along if you'd like to do that. This is lucky number 13 in the book of James. 13 Sundays it's taken us to work through this short letter. We started back in June. This morning we're in the final passage of James. And before we dig into these last few verses, I thought we would just recap and hit some of the high points of what we've seen over the summer. Some of the key ideas, the key doctrines, the key truths that we've come across in the book of James. So number one is this. God wants his people to be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That goes all the way back to James chapter 1 verse 4. God's aim for you is that you grow to spiritual maturity. Not just that you make a decision, or not just that you get baptized, or not just that you do spiritual things, but that you grow to spiritual maturity. What James is saying to us in James 1, 4 is that God the Father did not send God the Son to die for you just so you can go to heaven at the end of your earthly life, but God the Father sent God the Son to die for you so that you In following Jesus would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You could think of it a little bit differently. We could say God the Son did not send God the Spirit to be with His people and to give life to His people just so that you could walk down an aisle or get wet up in the baptistry. But God the Son sends His Spirit to give us new life, and that life eventually results in us growing as disciples. That we would be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And I just want to say this out of the gate because we're going to talk about church this morning. If that's God's plan for his people, that has to be the plan of the church that you attend. The church that you attend cannot have a plan of, well, we just want to gather a big crowd. We just want to sort of entertain people while they're here. We just want to have the latest, greatest event or whatever. But the plan of the church has to be, how can we help people grow in spiritual maturity? How can we help them walk as followers of Jesus so that the end result is that they are, James 1, 4, perfect and complete, lacking Nothing. That's why at Emmanuel, we just talked about this in our new member class. We had a great group of people. We talked about the mission of our church. And the mission is we exist to make disciples, not just to see people make a decision for Jesus and then we pat ourselves on the back and say, Yay, look at us, we did a great job, but to help people become disciples. According to Matthew 28, that means we're going to do evangelism and we're going to baptize new believers. And it means, this is part of our mission, part of our task, whether it's here or in Kenya, we're going to teach people to obey all that Jesus commanded until the end of the age and he comes back. We want people to grow as disciples. That's straight out of James 1. Here's another idea we've seen in James. God wants his people to have faith that works. This is central to the whole book It's the heart of chapter 2. We've titled the whole series, Faith That Works, because James keeps coming back to this idea in one way or another. He poses the question in chapter 2. Suppose a person, hypothetical situation, a person says they have faith, but it is not supported by or evidenced by works. They believe all the right things intellectually, but their life doesn't follow what they say they believe. James says, can that faith save a person? And the answer in chapter 2 is absolutely not. The demons have that kind of faith. They know all the right things. They believe all the true things. There's no change in their life. There's no repentance in their life. In your life, yes, you need to know the right stuff. You need to believe the right stuff. There's got to be this intellectual component that moves to your heart. But it's also got to play out in your life so that you have faith that works. Number three, God gives more grace. Thank God for that. Some of you have said, even this morning, I am so glad we're done with James. Can we do something easy next? Can we do something that will just... Oh, listen, we need a vacation. James is, man, he's rough and he's tough and he confronts you and he challenges you. And don't forget, at the heart of James is James 4, 6 that says he gives more grace. To those who are humble, he gives more grace. It's not a a book saying these are the things you need to do if you want to be saved. It's a book saying God is giving grace to his people. He's giving you the opposite of what you really deserve. And when that grace gets a hold of you, you are going to be a person of faith and you are going to have faith that works. This is going to be the evidence that God's grace has saved you and the evidence that God's grace is changing you. So all of that leads us to the big idea of the last section of James, James 5, 13 to 20. Here it is. God wants his people to be actively involved in a local church. God's desire for his people we could say it's James desire as well is that followers of Jesus are actively involved in a local church not just the idea that you say well i'm part of the universal church i don't really go anywhere but i'm part of the the sort of the invisible church the universal church but that you actually find a place in a local church Where you can be connected and involved in ministry and involved in other people. That's the big idea of this passage. And really, before we even read it, that shouldn't surprise us after we've tracked all the way through James. James is a pastor. He was a pastor, you could say, of the very first church ever, the church in Jerusalem. He pastored that church. And we talked about Acts 8. There was a persecution in Jerusalem. And all James' church members, except the leaders, all the church members had to run for their lives. They left Jerusalem. We kind of know what that's like in Odessa, right? People leave Odessa all the time. And there's James saying, well, what do I do now with these people? I'm going to write them a letter. I'm going to tell them You need to have faith that works. You've got to rely on God who gives more grace. The goal for you, even though you've left Jerusalem, is still that you would be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And in James' mind, all of those things happen in the context of a local church family. That's the big idea of this passage this morning. So let's read the end of the book, and then we'll pray. And we'll jump in and see what James has to say to us. So this is the Word of God in James five, thirteen. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful to be your people. We're thankful to come and to To approach you as our heavenly Father. Father, you're not just a distant deity barking out commands, but you are our Father. Father, you have been gracious to us. Father, we see in this book that you want us to be people who have faith that works and you want us to grow to maturity. And Father, we read these last verses and we see that that happens in the context of relationships, and relationships in a church family. Father, I'm thankful for this church family. I'm grateful to be a part of it. And Father, I pray that this morning as we look at your word, that your word would shape us together as a church. That we would not be the kind of church that necessarily the community is looking for, or that unchurched people are looking for, that the world would celebrate. Father, we want to be the kind of church that you would have us to be. And so we pray that your word would do its work in our life this morning, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This last week, I read a book for the first time. Some of you have maybe read it when you were in high school or in college. The book is The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Any of you guys read this book? few of you, quite a few of you. That's good. If you can get used to really long sentences and way too many dependent phrases, this is a great book. And once you settle into these sort of rambling sentences, you you get into the story and the heart of it and you say, This is this is pretty interesting what he's Describing, He wrote the book in 1850, but the setting of the book, you have to rewind even further, back to the 1600s. It's in the Massachusetts Bay Colony when the Puritans were first coming over, and they were settling, they were establishing these communities. So we're before the Revolutionary War, way, 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 way back. And in the story, church plays a major role and what unfolds in the drama. And I'll try my best not to to spoil it for you in case you want to read the book and and you're late to the game like I was. But in the book, church is is a big deal. It's it's a major character in the story almost. And it's not a good character. As he describes church, the the Puritan community there, these guys really kind of get a bad rap. They get painted in a negative light. And rather than being a place of acceptance and grace and forgiveness, as Hawthorne describes church, it's a place of judgment and legalism and hypocrisy. Right? Just angry, sour judgment and a whole bunch of rules that may be biblical or may not be biblical. And then a, a bunch of hypocrisy thrown in the mix where people are saying one thing and then doing another. And you walk away from the story and you just think, ugh. It just puts a bad taste in your mouth when you think about church. I hope that's not how you think about church. I hope that when you think about church, you don't think about, oh, that's a place of of judgment and legalism and hypocrisy. But I realize that for some of you, that may be what you think about. That may be because of your past experience in church. That may be because of things that your friends or your family have experienced in various churches that they've been to. Maybe it's just you don't have a whole lot of experience with church and you sort of believe the the bad press in in a book like this or in other things that you've read, things that you've heard on the news media. You just think about church and you think, oh, that's just a, a negative, judgmental, angry, hypocritical, legalistic place. And I realized that if that's you, even just a little bit, if that's you, when James says you're to be part of a local church family, and I tell you the big idea is God wants his people to be actively involved in a local church. You hear that if your experience is negative and you think, ugh, really? Couldn't I? I get the part that I need to have faith and And maybe you think, I get the part that God wants me to grow to maturity, but why do I need to do it with a bunch of misfits like you guys? Why why do I have to be a part of something that Hawthorne would describe as just so miserable? Why can't I just do all of this on my own? My my experience has been hurtful, or has been painful, or has been something that is just not quite right, and I just, I don't want to be actively involved. I just want to keep everyone at a distance. And maybe I'll come and I'll show up. But I really don't want to be an active, vibrant part. Some of you may be thinking that this morning. Before we've even gotten to the passages, we just give you the big idea. And we say, this is what God wants for you. Some of you, that just sounds crazy. You love your church. You're a part. You're, you're involved. But some of you, you say, oh, I don't know. James has already been tough. And this is just a, a harder pill to swallow. If that is you, I would just say a couple of things. One, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that something has happened to you or your family where church has burned you or hurt you. Two, I would say to you that not all church is like that. Not all church is like that. And I certainly hope that our church family is not a place of judgment and legalism and hypocrisy, but I hope it's a place of encouragement and grace and growth where you, alongside other believers, can become perfect and complete, lacking nothing in your walk with Jesus. The last thing I would say to you is this, just to be honest. God has always expected His people to be together. Always. There's never been such a thing as a lone ranger follower of Yahweh or a lone ranger Christian just doing their own thing. In the Old Testament, God established a nation, a group of people. And they lived sort of spread out in different cities and different places. But he said to them, you're going to get together regularly. You're going to get together. You're going to come to this place and you're going to worship together. He refers to them over and over again as the congregation or as the assembly of his people. When you get to the New Testament, we're not dealing with a nation anymore. It's not a a geopolitical state, but it's still the same word. We've gone from Hebrew to Greek, and the word is assembly, church, a congregation, a gathering of people. There is absolutely no concept in the Bible that you can follow the Lord, that you can be a follower of Jesus Christ and do it on your own. It's not there. It's not in Genesis all the way to Revelation. And Revelation takes us past today into the future. And guess what? We're still together. All the misfits you see around you for all of eternity, we're all together. That's what God expects of his people. As God is growing you to spiritual maturity, his plan and his intention is that it doesn't just happen with you all by yourself, but that it happens with you in community. And so the question is, Well, when we get together, when we're here at church, what are we supposed to do? How does that happen? And James doesn't spell out every detail, but he gives us some things that are very, very helpful. So this is what I want you to see. Things that we ought to do when we gather together as church. Four simple things that you see at the end of James. Number one is corporate worship. Corporate worship. Look what he says in verse 13, right there in the middle. He says, uh, if, if anyone... If anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise. And everything that he says in this book is in the context of you do it together. All these verbs and all these commands, they're, they're plural. They're said, and you're, you're doing this together. And he's about to talk about the church, and he says in verse verse 13, If anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise. This has always been part of church all the way back to the first church that James pastored in Jerusalem, fast forward all the way through the the Dark Ages, all the way up through the, the, the Renaissance and the Reformation, all the way up through the United States and the 1600s and the Puritans coming here, singing together has always been part of church experience. God's people gathering together to worship together. And it's looked different. If you compare what they did in James' church to... Emmanuel, it probably looks a little bit different and sounds a little bit different. And if you compare what they did in previous years or if you compare what they did in Kenya, places all around the world even today, you say, well, it it looks a little bit different. It sounds a little bit different. You could even go maybe just across the street or down the street and say, well, it's not quite the same experience. It, It sounds a little bit different. It feels a little bit different. But the one commonality is that God's people have always gathered together for corporate worship. We gather together, this is important, to worship God for who He is and what He's done. Who He is and what He's done. Throughout the ages, when Christians get together and sing, the point is not to say, look at us, we're the best. The point is not to draw attention to ourselves. The point is to acknowledge God for who He is and to acknowledge God for all that He's done for His people. That common thread goes all the way through the generations to Kenya, to Odessa, all around the world when we gather together for corporate worship. You see it, for example, in Psalm 150. Look what the psalmist says. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. That's what He's done. We're going to praise Him for what He's done. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. That's just who He is. We gather together worship. We're saying, God, you are a great God, and you have done great things for your people. It's as simple as that. The form may look a little bit different. The, the instruments may change. The voices or the setting might, might be not quite the same in every place, but that's the common thread, worshiping God for who he is and what he's done. You see this at the, at the end of the scriptures in the book of Revelation. My Sunday school class has been moving through the gospel project, and we looked last week at Revelation 4 and 5. This assembly gathered in in heaven for worship. And it begins worshiping God for who he is. Holy, holy, holy. We're going to acknowledge God just for who he is as God. And then it moves into all the things that he's done. He's the creator. He's the savior. He's the one who ransomed people to be able to to bring these sinful people into his presence. It's the same pattern in the Old Testament and the New. Worshiping God for who he is In what he's done. Some of you are sort of nodding along and you're saying, okay, that's good. I like that. Why can't I do that by myself? Why can't I put on my favorite Christian music and just do it in the car? Why can't I just do it in the deer blind? Why can't I just do it on the golf course? Why can't I just do it laying by the pool before it gets? Uh, too cold to, to go swimming. It's been 100 degrees for like nine months in Odessa. Why can't I just lay out by the pool and I just do it right there? Why do I have to gather together with all you misfits who couldn't carry a tune in a bucket if I handed it to you? Why do we have to sing together? My answer is, you can do it alone. You can do it by the pool or the golf course or the deer blind or wherever, driving down the road. But there's something special throughout the Bible and even today when God's people gather together to sing together. There's something special about it. And you say, well, that's very convenient of you to say. It's true. It's true. Martin Luther talked about this in the Reformation. We remember Luther is this great towering figure. And Luther acknowledged at one point, he said, sometimes my heart, it just, I I struggle, and I feel cold, and I feel distant from God, and I just feel like I'm not connecting with Him. And he said, but when I gather together with God's people, and I sing, something changes in my heart. God softens my heart. And it's not because the music is so great, or it's not because there's an emotional, manipulative appeal. It's just because there's something special about God's people gathering together for worship. James knew that, and he says to his church members, they all had to leave home, and he writes them this letter, and he says, listen, don't forget, you got to worship together. I know you're scattered. I know the old gang isn't together anymore, but you have got to be together with God's people for worship. Second, he talks about corporate prayer. Corporate, corporate prayer. <clears throat> this is maybe the most interesting part of the passage. And this is the part of the passage that when I read it earlier, some of you got uneasy. Some of you started thinking, if I'm in the hospital, I sure hope he doesn't do this to me. Like, I'm going I'm to ask my nurse, put a special note on my chart. Do not let the pastor in with a bottle of vegetable oil. Block him at the front desk. Don't let him come in. You think, that is strange. I don't understand that. And there's some stuff in here. James has a lot to say in 13 uh, down to 17 about prayer and what that looks like together. I just want to sort of tell you what I think he's saying, give you my best guess at what I think he's driving at, maybe alleviate some of your fears a little bit, and then try to, to, to settle on the big idea of all of this. James talks about people being sick and people being raised up. If you're sick, and then God's going to raise these people up. And as you read through it, some people say, What's he talking about? Is he talking about physical sickness? Is he talking about spiritual sickness? I think right out of the gate, he's talking about physical sickness. I think he has in mind, you know, you got pneumonia or you're laid up in the hospital with this infection or you've got this cancer diagnosis or whatever it may be. I think he's talking about a physical kind of illness. And then he talks about oil. And there's a lot of debate about this. What, what does that mean? Are we supposed to do it today? And my take on this is that he's talking about oil used medicinally. Some people say, no, it's more symbolic, and it's sort of a a consecration thing, and we should keep doing it. But I think what he's saying is, take your medicine. Like You see that in the Bible, people using oil to treat illness. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan, and he helps this man, and he anoints this man with oil. He's providing for him. You see this even in ancient works. There was a a physician in the second century named Galen, and he wrote all this stuff about medicine and all these big medical books. And Galen basically said he was like some of these people that use oil today for everything. I'm not making fun of those people, but Galen did that long before you did it. And Galen said, you got a toothache? Put a little oil on it. If you're paralyzed, put oil on that person. I mean, he talked about all kinds of things they would treat it With oil. It was sort of what they had available. And I think that's what James is saying. Pray if you're sick and go ahead and take the medicine. Don't just pray and wait for a miracle, but let's do both. Pray and you anoint this person with oil. And then he talks about the prayer of faith. Did you catch that? The prayer of faith. And he talks about this prayer of faith healing somebody. This prayer has great power as it's working. Verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick. And you mean, you read that and you think, save? What does he mean? Does he mean save from their sins like they go to heaven? Or does he mean save from illness? I'm not exactly sure, but I don't think James is talking about a name it, claim it thing, like a magical formula. Like if you show up and you pray and you do the oil, then this is like a guaranteed process where you can get what you want. I think when he talks about the prayer of faith, we rewind it back to James 1, where he says, if you lack wisdom, you should ask for it, and you should ask believing. It's very similar language to this prayer of faith. You should ask for wisdom, believing that God can give it to you. Isn't that really the essence of prayer, however you divide this passage up, and if you disagree with me on some of the particulars, isn't that the essence of prayer, that we're coming to God because there's something that we need that we're incapable of? We're coming to the one that we believe can do something about our circumstance or our situation or our heart? Isn't that kind of the essence of Christianity as a whole? Not that we pull ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps and come to God offering him all these great things, but that we just come to him and say, God, I I can't do it. I can't make myself right before you. I can't bridge the gap that my sin has created between you and me. I, I can't atone for the things that I've done wrong. God, I need you to do it. That's the essence of our faith, and I think that's the essence of prayer, is coming to God, believing that he has power, right? However you chop this up, I think that's what James is driving us to when he's talking about corporate prayer. We gather to pray because we believe God is powerful. He can do something that we can't do. That kind of gets back to the issue of humility earlier in James, that he gives grace to the humble person. The humble person acknowledges, God, you're God and I'm not. There's things you can do that I can't do. I'm dependent on you. I need you. And I think that's what James is driving us to. Now, look, we can debate all that stuff. I don't want you to miss the bigger picture that James is talking about here. And I put it in italics on your, on your notes. We worship together and we pray together in every circumstance because we believe God is sufficient for every season of life. And did you catch what James says right out of the gate here? He talks about people who are suffering. Well, you should pray. What if I'm not suffering and I'm cheerful? Well, there's still something that you ought to be doing together. You should sing praise. Well, what if I'm sick? Well, there's something that you should do together. It really doesn't matter what your circumstance or your situation. There's nothing in your life that's so desperate that God can't handle it. And there's nothing in your life that's so great that you suddenly lose your need for God. In every circumstance, in every situation, we're people who come together and we say, God, you are worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our worship. We need you. We're dependent on you. There's things that we can't do, and we're asking you to do it. Look, we do that every Sunday in this room. We say, God, we need you to change our hearts. We can't change them ourselves. As we sing and as we listen to your word, change us. Work in us. Why do we ask him that? Because we say, God, we need you. We're dependent on you. And that's true whether you're suffering. It's true whether you're cheerful. It's true whether you're sick. It's true in every season of life that we gather together as his people and we acknowledge our need for him and our dependence on him. Number three, corporate confession. This is a tough one. Look what he says in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Let me go back to the scarlet letter for a minute. There's a, a character in the story. He's a pastor, a Puritan pastor. His name is Arthur Dimsdale. Arthur Dimsdale. Everyone loves him. He's the, I mean, he's the greatest. He's a great preacher. Everyone looks at this guy and they think he's so humble. He's so contrite. His congregation is thriving. He's one of the most popular guys in the settlement, in the whole colony. People know him in different places. He's got this great reputation. People recognize him as a brilliant scholar. I mean, everything is great for Arthur, Pastor Dimsdale but he's got a problem. And the problem is that he's got a secret that no one knows about. He's got sin that's unconfessed. And his plan for dealing with it is, I'm just going to bottle it up and I'm going to put on a good face and a good front for everyone and I'm just going to try to forget about it and move on. In the book, as time goes on, month after month, year after year, this unconfessed sin just starts to weigh on him. Spiritually, he's a mess. I mean, a total train wreck. It looks good from the outside. No one really knows it, but his closest friend knows something's not right in his heart. And eventually, it begins to physically weigh on him. David talks about this in the Psalms, in Psalm 32. He talks about unconfessed sin. He tried to keep it bottled up, and it was just like a weight Crushing him, like he had rottenness in his bones. this spiritual agony he was in has a physical impact on him in some way. And that's what Arthur Dimsdale's experiencing. He's just experiencing this weight of unconfessed sin. Some of you are, are there. I don't know it. Maybe the people in your family don't know it. Maybe the people in your Sunday school class have absolutely no idea. Maybe your coworkers think everything is great. But you've got this weight that you're carrying around and it's just eating you from the inside out. And James says, verse 16, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. You read that and you think, Okay, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to keep a log of sins this week and show up to Sunday school class and they're going to ask for prayer requests and I'm going to raise my hand and just start reading the list off? And the answer is no, don't do that. Your Sunday school teacher is thinking, no, absolutely not. We don't have time to listen to the whole list, right? we got a lesson to teach. we got big church to go to. Here's what it does mean. It doesn't mean that you go to every person who sits in this room on a Sunday and you detail out all your deep, dark secrets in full you know, 4K, 1080 HD, you just lay it all out there for everyone to see in all its gory detail, it does mean this. There should be somebody here in our church family that you can go to. Maybe in confidence. Maybe just one other person. But somebody that you could go to and talk about sin in your life. Some relationship that is close enough that you could go to somebody and say, I'm being eaten alive, and I gotta talk to somebody about this. It doesn't have to be a, a pastor. I don't have any magic words to say. It could be your Sunday school teacher. It could be a, a fellow member of your class. It could be a staff member. But you need to go to someone. You need to say, I've gotta got get this out. It's just eating me from the inside. I think the issue is here that we gather together to pray about our spiritual lives. I think that's the underlying issue that James is laying before us. When we gather together to pray, one specific part of that, one little slice of that ought to be our spiritual lives. And can we just be honest for a minute? Maybe I'm not in all of your Sunday school class. I'm just in my class, so maybe this is just my class and your class is really good at this. Don't most of us feel kind of weird about asking people to pray for us about spiritual things? I mean, think about the prayer requests that we commonly hear when we say, "What prayer request would you like to share this week?" Well, so and so is sick. That's always at the top of the list, and James says you should pray for that. Right? That's that's good. Let's share those requests. And then we our our mind sort of is running, and we say, "Oh well, so and so is out of town. They're traveling." And we want them to come back safe. So let's pray for them while they're traveling. Okay, great. Pray for those who are traveling. And then maybe our our brains are sort of spinning and we say, uh, what about our missionaries? Should we pray for our missionaries? Maybe we have a mission team going to Kenya. We're all comfortable praying about that. We're comfortable praying for folks who are sick. Comfortable praying about, uh, you know, missionaries being gone and the work that they're doing. Maybe there's something going on at church. We say, hey, we should we should pray for our new member class this morning, our plugged in class. Let's pray for that. That doesn't make anyone uncomfortable. Let's fill up the sick list. Everyone's okay. But then you start to say, man, I'm struggling. I'm hurting. I'm wrestling with something in my life, and most of us start to think, "Yeeesh, too much information." Are you can bare your soul to the whole room. Awkward silence, and then no one else wants to say a prayer request after that, right? You don't want to say pray for something that seems trivial after that, and we just get uncomfortable. And maybe the place to do it isn't your whole class or the whole church. But surely, as followers of Jesus, we're together in this church family. Surely, we ought to be able to pray for each other about spiritual things. Surely, it shouldn't just be always a place of judgmentalism and hypocrisy and legalism, but that we should recognize, I'm a sinner, in case you weren't aware of that, and so are you. And at some point, at some time, we're going to need people to pray for us. And James says, look... Pray for each other. Confess your sins to each other. And he gives us this great promise. He says to us, the prayer of a righteous person has power as it's working. It reminds me of what John says in 1 John 1, 1.9. Look at this verse. 1 John 1, 1.9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't bottle them up like David tried to do. Don't do what Arthur Dimmesdale did and just try to keep it all inside. Confess it. John says confess it to God, and James says you ought to confess it to each other too. It's like this weight being released when you open your mouth and you stop pretending like you have all your spiritual ducks in a row and you confess your sin to someone in your church family that you're close to. James says that kind of power has great power. Or that kind of prayer has great power as it's being prayed. And John says, when you do that, God forgives you and he cleanses you. So we gather together, we pray about our spiritual lives. One last point, and it's a quick one. Corporate encouragement. It translates to church like this. We gather to hold each other accountable. We gather to hold each other accountable. And that's where James ends. I think it's interesting that in this long book as he's describing faith that works and he's given us all these commands, 108 verses, 59 commands. He ends as a realist knowing people are going to struggle with this. This is not just easy stuff to follow Jesus. It's not easy to pursue being perfect and complete, lacking nothing. It's not easy to have faith that works. This stuff is hard. That's why God's put us together. And he says, look, some of you are going to wander and somebody's going to have to go after that person. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? I'm going to leave the 99 and I'm going to go after the one that's lost. James is saying, you've got to do that for each other. You've got to go after each other. Don't just let them wander off. But you've got to go after that person. I think everything that James is saying here I think it's a timely word for our church. This wasn't planned by me. I wish I could take some kind of credit for it. But as I studied this week, I thought, what a great thing that we're talking about what we do as a church family on the morning where we're going to welcome new members to our church. We've got people this morning who are in our plugged-in class. Some of them are going to join. We're going to get, to get to see them in just a minute. This is not just we add them to the role and we feel better about ourselves because the room is a little bit fuller. This is what James is describing here, right? The people that you see standing up here in a minute and people who are standing up here in a minute, all the people who are sitting out there staring at you, this is the kind of stuff that we're all signed up for, that we would be people who, who worship together. We keep showing up every Sunday morning in this room together to sing the same things over and over and over again. God, you're great, and you've done great things for us. That's what you're signing up for, to be here, to be a part of that. To come alongside each other in prayer, right? To pray for each other because we believe that God can do things that we can't do. So we're going to a a higher authority saying, God, we need you as your people. We need you. We do it in every season of life, the good ones and the bad ones. We do exactly what James is talking about where he talks about confessing our sins to each other, that there's someone or some ones in this church that you're close enough that when you feel that weight of unconfessed sin, you can go to them and you can talk to them and they'll pray for you. And James says that prayer has great power. And what James is talking about at the end where he says, look, we're holding each other accountable. We're in this together. This is like a no man left behind thing. If you wander off, we're coming after you. Right? Church family, for the people who are standing up here, that's our obligation to them. And people who are about to stand up here, that's your obligation now as a member for those who sit in the seats this morning. To say, we're not going to leave anyone behind. We're not just going to let somebody wander off, but we're in it together. In all of this, James is saying, you guys as a church are in it together. Your walk with Jesus is not just about you. But it's about you and all of the people in your church family. And God's desire for you to be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, is not going to happen in your life or the person sitting next to you apart from active involvement in a church family.